There are plenty of really, really good ideas all over the place, but they don't spread. Uh, so our whole focus was, well, what if we created ways for people to intentionally spread ideas that already existed or spark ways for them to, to work? Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So welcome to Learning Unboxed. Um, we're excited to be here today. Our guest today is Dr. Rich Rosen, founder and executive director of Indigo Strategies, an organization created to mobilize practicing engineers to use systems and analysis and design skills to address education problems in their local community. And I'm very, very fortunate to have known Rich for many years and seen um, a variety of different components of his intriguing career over time. Um, one of the other things that Rich does and has has set up is something called Engineers Helping Educators. And I think that gets to the heart of the spirit of Dr. Rich Rosen. So welcome. Well, thank you for having me. So I want to start with the fact that you are an engineer, yep. but you are heavily involved not just in your local community, but a global community around STEM education mm-hmm. and a lot of work around the creation of successful public-private partnerships as they relate to the disruptive elements that are so desperately needed to um, address the educational mm-hmm. system. So tell me a little bit about the journey as it relates to getting to the space where you're kind of a guru <laughs> of making this stuff actually work. Or at least making this stuff up, right? So um, here's the here's the relevant journey to how do I sit in this chair right now with you. When I when I finished college, I was an, an engineer. I was both a biomedical engineer and an electrical engineer, and uh, that was a long time ago, back in the early '80s. And I went to work for a company called Battelle here in Columbus, Ohio. And Battelle is kind of a very unique place. It's very unique in the sense that it's a it's a large contract research. Uh, and development organization. And it it also has this kind of very, very intriguing public mission to use the proceeds from its work to help advance essentially education of men and women for employment, right? And it developed way back in the 20s when that charter was set. So I went to work there. I didn't go to work there in that area. I went to work there as an engineer in the, what would become the healthcare division. And I ended up uh, eventually operating that division at one point in time. I spent 30 years at Battelle, and sort of the first the first kind of aspect of this journey is that Battelle is a place in which nothing that it does is not done in partnership with somebody else because it's a contract R&D organization. So it's always working for a client or a partner. And so uh, in, in my journey there uh, for the f- first 20 years of my 30 years there, I was basically in charge of setting up the relationships between us and and other organizations that needed these this healthcare R&D uh, completed. And over that period of time, I think, uh, I was kind of reflecting on this, I was coming in this morning, um, I think I worked with something like 600 different organizations 
big and small, public and private. And, you know, when you're working on their problems, you tend to get a good sense of kind of what their motivations are and so on. I had an opportunity about maybe 20 years into my career to move from the healthcare division uh, to work in the in uh, what would what would essentially be the global community relations part of Patel, the part of Patel that uses its proceeds and donates them to worthy causes that are within the mission of the organization. At that time, uh, so th- uh, what was going on in the U.S. at that time was. Uh, the uh, rising above the gathering storm had just come out. Yeah. Uh, other, you know, it's sort of the periodic call to action that the United States is having all these difficulties in the right kind of workforce and loss of of uh, science as a as a as a basic fundamental, you know, literate skill that uh, that people have. When I took over the uh, essentially what was the foundation. We were doing a variety of really, really good things, but we were didn't have a lot of focus in one area. And it was obvious that, uh, you know, if, if any place was going to kind of put a mission together, it would be, why not? Why shouldn't we work in STEM education? It seemed to be a thing we could do. We didn't know what we would exactly do, but it was a thing we could do. But you might know something about uh, that, But I might know right? something about it, right? <laughs> yeah, from my other background, right? And, and it was what we did as an organization. So, uh, so... Uh, what I uh, what I decided to do was well okay we're going to focus on that but again the only thing that we knew the only thing that I knew how to do was do something in partnership with somebody else so so that's what we started to do we we went around to our uh, you know to other places that looked like they were doing things like this and we interviewed them we wanted to find out what they were doing what we knew was we knew a lot about STEM we knew nothing about about what would be the best and highest use of of, of our kind of work to help. What we also knew was that we didn't want to invent something new because as an engineer, you know, I think back that, in, you know, if you're an engineer, you typically don't engineer something new without reverse engineering everything else that's ever been done, right? You take them apart. You know, when I was a kid, I was taking, you know, my, my parents would throw something away. My brother and I would go into the trash and take it apart before it got thrown away. You know, so we were, you know, it was all about kind of what did other people do? And so, uh, so what we ultimately found was, you know, we could help put partnerships together, right? We could, and as I talked to corporations about doing this, they said, you know, this is a really worthy endeavor. It's really hard to do. It's really hard to do it for very long because even though we all want this to work, it's not what we do for a living, right? So public-private partnerships, especially between education and businesses, they share an intention for the world to be better. Uh, but they are culturally, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles apart. But there was also a, a sense of urgency, and this is where mm-hmm. where I met you. Mm-hmm. Um, our journeys intersect in the the urgency that's coming as mass f- of folks getting ready to retire. And so I think that um, globally, corporations, businesses, and industries were ready to embrace the conversation. Right. But to your point, very few were ready to stand up and say, we have no idea, but we will give that a try. Right, exactly. So... The awareness was really high. You know, we're losing welders. We're, we don't have these. We don't have that. But the, the, the goal was, in many cases, we'll give money to that, right, because that's what corporations can do. But what their probably their, their most important asset was, with, was their skill base, their employees, their, you know, a variety of other things. It wasn't something that they wanted to do. And mostly it wasn't something that they wanted to do 
Uh, first, because it wasn't it wasn't what they did for a living. Number one. Number two is it's a big unknown. You know, it, it, you know, you, all you have to do is look at the paper in any city that's got a large school district and realize that you know the last thing that you that you want your CEO involved in is the middle of a scandal someplace, right? So, so they always wanted to do things at a distance, right? So they were always interested in funding some third party to right. put that relationship together. We saw that that wasn't the way that we wanted to do it because it, we knew how to we knew how to we knew how to partner in different ways because it wasn't deliberate enough, right? And then that had been the historical trend, obviously. That conversation right. often takes place between schools and business and industry, and how do we even have a conversation right. together? Much less roll up our sleeves and do something right. very meaningful together. So it wasn't it, not only wasn't it deliberate, it wasn't intentional, and it wasn't systematic. So it would be very you know a, a you know, people would talk about let's do this, and then it would it will impact the rest of the world. But there wasn't necessarily a, a mechanism right. where that would spread. You know, one of the things that we know is a good idea doesn't spread just because it's a good idea. Uh, it may do that in iPhones and in 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 commercial electronics. It's not going to do that in education. Right. But we also knew that there are plenty of really really good ideas all over the place, but they don't spread. Uh, so our whole focus was, well, what if we created ways for people to intentionally spread ideas that already existed or spark ways for them to to work? And ultimately, that's what I ended up doing for a long time was about 10 years of essentially funding not systemic uh, STEM initiatives, but but systemic partnership formation, right? So, you know, uh, ideas about how if one organization would fund another organization, could they could they use their expertise for a while to tell a third organization how they did that, right? And ultimately, that led to a number of pretty good successes. You know, uh, STEM networks around the country, you know, individual public-private partnerships where schools got formed and so on. When I retired, and now about 10 years ago, one of the interests that I had at the time was, was and that I still do, is I had all these really good experiences, right? Experiences of, you know, what motivated people to do public-private partnerships, both in industry and then in, in education. I had seen, you know, a variety of things that never worked. They, I'd seen the demise of really good ideas. So as an education entrepreneur, which is essentially, you know, I call myself now an, an education engineer, right? Not, as, not in terms of education engineering, but just engineering systems that help in, in furthering education causes. And so I wanted to teach that, right? And and somebody else who had known me had encouraged me to, look, you've had this really interesting career uh, doing these things, and now you're interested to explore them a little further. You know, maybe uh, you should research, you know, what works and what doesn't work or what you see out there from the standpoint of a, of a researcher, not a practitioner. So uh, I ended up becoming a fellow at Johns Hopkins University at a time when they were involved in STEM education advancement, uh, and then ultimately joined a, a program there and graduated with my doctorate in education so I could teach entrepreneurship education. And so just to be clear, after you retired, you had an entire career mm -hmm. and made a conscious choice to take the experiences and the learning that you had along the way. And we're going to circle back around a little bit to some of the pretty valuable lessons mm -hmm. that we right. learned because they, right. they influenced your research heavily. Absolutely. Right. And so uh, that's a pretty brave thing, mm -hmm. I'll be honest. <laughs> um, you know, um, grad students ask me all the time, should I go to grad school? And I I almost always say, oh, no, don't do that. Not unless you really, really want yeah, to do it. Yeah, so it, yeah. that's a leap. Well, I really, really wanted to do it, right? <laughs> uh, and I wanted to do it because I was so 
uh, first I was interested to, to, to learn more about, I wonder how these things actually worked out. And, and I had an opportunity to research some of the things that I had done and other people had done. So what ultimately brings me here is that I got to the other end of, of uh, doing that research about, you know, what is it that makes certain types of public par- uh, partnerships work and endure uh, while others with virtually the same circumstances meet their demise. I was really interested in that. Uh, secondly, um, you know, I, uh, as you know, I, you know, I had a chance to work with, with your organization when I was funding things like this. That's uh, so how I got to know that work. And, and ultimately joined the boards of a couple of places that were, uh, that were really integral to this. And my, my interest, it, it, especially in things that we'll get, we'll circle back around to past, was that one observation is that one of the difficulties of advancing uh, things like education when corporations want to work with them or, or other entities is that despite the best efforts of schools, uh, there's so many fixed conditions going on in schools that you can set up the best idea you ever had and it'll tip over right away from the, with the first thing that sort of goes awry because there isn't a lot of time to explore that kind of work in that environment. Yeah, built-in systems of constraints that yeah. we just yeah. can't, quite frankly, yeah. engineer around yeah. in and, those moments. And there's nothing to indict them about. It's just the way that system works. Correct. So Correct. other ways to get at that are were, were important. So that's how I get to be here. And thank you again for having me here. Well, we're thrilled to have you here, and it's been an amazing journey. And I do think that, you know, when I step back and think about the role not only that your work has had in the sort of serial startup, Mm -hmm. and that's one of the ways that I kind of like to think about it is, as we look at, you know, some of the alternative education movement that's happened over, quite frankly, many decades um, in the U.S. and around the world, we see the cyclical nature of what's going on with that. And and there's a Mm -hmm. lot of repeat to your point Mm -hmm. earlier, of things that didn't work, but we thought they might work, so let's maybe try them again, rather than sort of a giant step back um, and saying, let's really take a look at why we're where we are, how we got here, what we need to be thinking about it a little bit differently as we spend some time reflecting on it before we lean in and then try to Mm -hmm. say, okay, and here's a possible tangible solution. And my very first experience and exposure um, with Battelle um, was having a conversation um, with a philanthropy Mm -hmm. person about what it is that we as an organization, the Past Foundation, um, were doing. And I'll never forget this moment because it was very tangible to me. And I think it sort of set direction and course for the way I was thinking about all of this. And you know, I, so I'm talking to to Battelle, this leader mm-hmm. in the STEM world, even though we hadn't really put that label on it specifically, even at that time, saying to me, well, we, you know, we don't fund that. You know, we, we, we fund the ballet, we fund the art museum, we fund all these things, all worthy, wonderful things that many corporations mm-hmm. do, in fact, do in their communities, and we need them to do those. There was, to your point, a tangible disconnect between the power of the entity, that corporate thing, and yeah. the potential as that corporate thing could influence both workforce and need and community and direction. Mm-hmm. So share a little bit of that with me because you really mm-hmm. did the architecture and the driving behind taking, uh, in this case, Battelle, um, and in partnership ultimately through that journey with many other leading corporations mm-hmm. around the U.S. and saying, right. we are going to change the landscape of education through our focus on STEM. So you're correct. We had, we had, done, we had done plenty of worthy things. 
it was time to to focus. And so it began with a question, which is a very good way to get any STEM conversation going. And our question was uh, was basically this: What's the best and highest use of Battelle now to make some difference in the issues that were arising from? Things like Gathering Storm and others, right? What's the way that, what's the, but the, but the operative thing was, what's the best and highest use of our total organization? Uh, and that meant beyond our money, uh, it meant our knowledge, it meant our access. You know, we had a variety of those things, but it was a best and highest use question. What would we do? And so one that I would say, you know, other organizations should always ask, right? It's not, it's it, because that one is different than what should be done. Correct. Right? Because what should be done looks at the global landscape and says, well, there's a lack of these workers. We should do more of that, right? And then you find out there's 5,000 other people doing that. And, and it isn't that, that you shouldn't do something that 5,000 other people are doing. But you should look at it and say, in light of that, what's the best and highest use of our work in that area, right? Some organizations will say the best and highest use of our, of our organization is the money that we can give because we can't spend the time or we can't do whatever. Other organizations, and especially the, the question for us was, look, we are an organization that does this, right? And yet the, the, the biggest part of our knowledge base doesn't seem to, or isn't involved in that, it's involved in something else. The second thing that, that led us where we did is we, we did not assume that we knew what we were doing, right? That's always a good place to start, it's the right? the best place to start, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Acknowledge everything you have no idea yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, think about it this way. I mean, it, when I started this, my 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 total experience in schools is that I had gone to one, right? And, right? and you had children yeah. in one, and I had children in one. So, <laughs> but I mean that. So, so on one hand, it makes me an expert in something that happened thirty five years ago, right? And so, so we began by saying, uh, what would be the best thing we could do by going and asking other people. Right. What kind of things could we help with? Right. And it, that's where your reflection that, you know, you talked about walking in saying, this is terrific. You're doing all these things, but why wouldn't you be working in these areas more specifically? Right. That was like what everybody said. Exactly. Right? Exactly. That was par for the course. That was that was one of right. many conversations that as we right. were launching the past foundation um, that we had over and over again, you had to justify the need for the for not just the participation, but I would argue for the influence, right? right. So what I was really asking Battelle for was, yes, help us do this via, you know, the power of, of your funding capability. Mm-hmm. But more important than that is help us do what you do right. in this right. space that's ready to be reimagined. Right. And and that was the second point that we heard was you, you could do a lot of interesting things. Uh, but the other thing is, is that you have a... You have a reputation, not necessarily in this area, but you're known, right? So if you did something, uh, you probably could get more access to things, Correct. right? Right. And uh, and you may be able to make more introductions and so on. So so the the other thing that we saw was that how hard it is to work with educators given their other constraints, right? The best things that they want to do, but they're you know they they can't find one hour in a month to schedule a teacher meeting because they're so booked up doing other stuff. And so we had all these really great ideas at the beginning about, you know, uh, if, if you were Battelle and you were doing this, you know, everything we did was with laboratories and we prototyped things and, you know, we, we, we thought about systems-related uh, influences and progressions of stuff. 
And and so we thought, well, you know, schools could be laboratories, right? And the answer is no, they really can't, right? They're 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 not designed to experiment with things that don't have a certain outcome. And then they're and and not only that, but the people who are in them were never trained to, you know, to be explorers like that. You know, and and so because of that, you know, we started to think about, well, there needs to be, you know, in, in every other field, there's R and D centers. Right. Uh, there are places where an idea goes to be nurtured, to be tested with real th- people, uh, but it's in a safe enough environment that the downside of the experiment is not going to collapse society, right? It's going to it's going to inform us somehow. So you know that's how we uh, got involved with you guys, right? You know, in the beginning it was like you know, okay, you know, you you are you know we we saw this the, this sort of agile entity that could. Try new things, you know. Have sort of had the same philosophy: start before you're ready. Get be smart about the way that you go about doing it. Be respectful about the culture of the people that you're in. Which is the other thing that I think we, we you know. So we we also had this this idea that we didn't go in with the idea that this system is broken and everybody in it is guilty. Right. right? I mean, which right. which I think was a you know oftentimes mm-hmm. it wasn't a prevailing wind of those who were informed. But you take two steps back and. It's obviously guilty because, you know, just people that don't know what they're doing have designed it. It's the common conversation, right, yeah, out in yeah, the public yeah, that education yeah. is an epic and utter failure. And yeah. that's just not true. Yeah, there's nobody guilty. Right. right? It's, it's, it's a systemic yeah, issue yeah. tied to obsolescence, yeah. right? So, so we, we were intrigued with anybody that, was, that had sort of this explorer mentality. And uh, and could figure out ways to sort of set up the experiment, and get willing participants, right? With a with an idea that you know you could set up the best experiment, but if it if it's if the people involved in it are either too fearful to do it, or they're already against it from the beginning, uh, it doesn't stand a chance. Right. So we started to do that, and, and ultimately, that's what led me down this path of of public-private partnerships because the the observation that I had at the time was there are a lot of people that want this solution. There are a lot of people that, wanna, that want to participate in helping to resource it. Uh, there are a lot of people that will benefit from the solution, but they're not necessarily interested in being part of the exploratory journey because uh, it's a distraction for them, quite frankly, when they're doing other things. So uh, so our our thought was, well, we could... We could find ways to put partnerships together that would be with the right kinds of partners, not just Battelle and others, but just what were the styles of things. I, I, toward the end of my time at Battelle and then as I retired and uh, my wife and I did the engineers helping educators thing, it was sort of like one of the things that edu- engineers are good at doing uh, is not just problem solving, but, but sort of being in the middle of, I wonder why this works like this, right? And... And and secondly, I wonder what we could do to help other organizations who were interested in doing this find, in essence, what's their best and highest use. How would they answer that question? And uh, and that's what led me to kind of understand or try to understand more about why did some things fail or meet their demise. I would say failure is again not the best word for when partnerships end Mm -hmm. because, again, they didn't, you know, they they may not have met their objectives, but most of the time partnerships end because they meet their demise, not because they're designed to end. Mm -hmm. 
but other ones do. Other ones make it, right? And they're and all the same kind of things happen. And so I, I started to spend most of my time helping design uh, structures or, or relationships between organizations that would be more robust, right? As opposed to thinking, how can we make this sustainable? Thinking about the end, I would think about instead, how can I make this this endeavor that these two organizations are trying to do more robust in the journey so that the first time that it goes off the rails, because it goes off the rails usually on about the second day, that it doesn't meet its demise because it's too fragile. Right. And, and so that's what led us to this idea of creating sort of safe spaces for where things could be uh, developed, uh, to look for what are the key ingredients of the starting of a partnership that you just sort of have to have in place so they can survive those, you know, those first you know, really fragile days, all that kind of stuff. So let's 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 uh, wrap this up with um, circling back around to that safe space mm-hmm. um, a little bit, because when you know, in in my journey and talking with teachers or school administrators or community leaders or, or even our uh, you know our CEOs or industry leaders. Oftentimes, one of the things that you see over and over again, especially when you get those folks in that room for the very first time Mm -hmm. and everybody lets go of it's not working, which is step number one and sometimes a really tough step to take. But once they do, there's still a hesitancy. Mm -hmm. There is you can watch it happening by, uh, you know, looking at the faces around the room and the, the folks on the school side of the equation are you know, if you could, if you could have the imaginary thought bubbles, right? The thought bubble would be everything from these people think we're failing to um, I have no idea how to have a conversation with Mr. X or or Mrs. Y about what they do and how could I possibly incorporate what what they're doing out in the world into what I'm doing right here in this moment with my little kids, with my middle school kids, with my mm-hmm. high school kids, even with my collegiate kids. Some some folks struggle, and the industry po- folks, their thought bubble. Is is very similar. It's like, I don't know how to talk to these people. I don't know how to, to influence what's happening. You know, is there a meaningful role for mm-hmm. me? And oftentimes we find mm-hmm. that it boils down to removing all the parties from the place that they are comfortable on their own and creating another space mm-hmm. uh, for that creativity to flow. So share just a little bit um, sort of best practices, I guess, if you will, um, you know, in that closing for folks who are contemplating mm-hmm. grabbing a hold and saying, we're going to do it different. Right. What would that be? Right. So a couple of things. First off is if you think about those first conversations, right, you, you have typified them exactly right. Mm-hmm. What's going on in my thought bubble is, I may never be able, if I'm a teacher, you know, I've never sat with the CEO before, I'll never have a chance to do this again. You know, I've, I need, you know, I don't even know how to answer these questions. So you've got, you know, you're, you've got an anthropological background. You know that this is, these are two dramatically different cultures. Mm-hmm. They speak the same English language, but that's about the end of it. And so, uh, so one of the things that, that tended to be taboo, uh, so go to a corporation and say, why are you helping educators? The last thing they'll that they would they would typically answer would be because there's something in it for us, right? Because that's taboo, right? Um, instead, it would be because the world should have better X, and that's a true statement, right? But the first thing that I would say to anybody who does this is you have to walk in the room with your enlightened self-interest on your sleeve, right? You should be able to answer a question uh, that the reason I'm that I'm helping with this is because it's going to help my company. 
right? And that's and and if it's enlightened self interest and it helps my company and it helps advance education at the same time, then that's a good endeavor. That's a win, right? It's a win, and it probably has more likelihood that it that it sustains itself the first time something breaks apart. Exactly. So, w- what does enlightened self interest look like in this in in especially in this day and age? Well, you know, I, there's there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that says if you get your in, your company involved in education in some intentional way, let your employees go work with students, uh, let teachers come in and and shadow you in your laboratory. Pick something that enables people to to not end the meeting with just we'll get together and talk again in this artificial room, but that they actually see each other for what they do. That will give you uh, an idea that your employees might like your organization better. You know, maybe they want to stay longer, you know, especially in a millennial time when people really have a focus on kind of their own contributions to the world. They want to work in places where there's purpose, right? So show them that. So some of it's that. Uh, But whatever it is, don't be afraid to say that the reason that I'm here is because I'd like to find the best and highest use of my organization to help you. And also help me at the same time, right? That's number one. And then the second one, the second question that follows that is to not assume that you know what's hard for the other person to do. Exactly. Right? Because if we sit around and we design in a room and we get really excited about what we're going to do, we'll design something that is absolutely unachievable, right? It'll be grand, but it'll be unachievable. So so I would ask you, tell me, of everything that we just described we're going to do, what's hard for you to do, Right? And you might find the simplest things come out of it, right? Like a teacher might say, it's wonderful, but I have no budget for this, and I can't afford the bus to get my kids from here to there. How much will that cost? $57, right? So, so you know, now the conversation is, becomes, in order to do this big grand thing, the, the lack of $57 is one of the problems, right? But the, challenge, but, but the question is, you know, uh, here's, what, here's what I'm in it for, right? What are you in it for? Uh, what's hard for you to do, right? And sometimes the hard for you to do will be, I'm afraid to fail, right? Or I'm afraid that, that if I do this, it'll take away eight precious hours that I have to do something else. I don't know how I'll get that done, so I can't imagine a future where that is. And then culturally, if I ask you what's hard for you to do, uh, that's an invitation for you to share something that in the other conversation you were describing, the last thing in the world that you would do if this was your first and only sit down between an educator and a corporation would be to say, oh, by the way, of all the things we're talking about, here's all the reasons why this might fail, right? Because it's, it's you know, it's, it's just not in our nature to do that. So those are the first two practices of kind of how do you enter into it. And then the next thing I would say is, if you want to look at what is it that causes the demise of hundreds of thousands of partnerships, it is a change in something. Change in leader or founder of the initiative, whatever it was, that person he or she goes away. A change in funding, like we funded it for the first round, but we don't have any funding for the second round. Uh, whatever it might be, it's a change in something. And and then, you know, sub-changes, like, you know, the 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 key person who was working on it left or got distracted into something else, or we got a result that we didn't like and we don't know how to report on it, whatever it is. The other parts of the setup are if your senior most leader is not integrally involved, not just as a as as a part of the endorsement, but somebody who really is accountable to it, it has a lesser chance of success. And and I don't say this with 
I, I understand what how hard this is uh, to do, but uh, to get your CEO or your division president or whatever to to come forward and declare that they're involved, not just to say I endorse this, but you know we, as you know, when we were starting off things in in some of these partnerships, one of the first inclinations I would have is we're going to have some sort of a, of a public event where all the leaders will come out and declare what they're going to do. Right. And part of the reason that I always wanted to do that was I wanted it at the time I wanted it on tape, not on podcast, but because it was a little it was <laughs> earlier. Um, but I wanted to be able to go back later and remind somebody that, there, that there's a there's a video of you somewhere saying that you were actually committed to doing this. Right. And not as blackmail, although maybe that's a part of the design <laughs> criteria, too, uh, but as a way to remind people that, you know, that same state of mind you were in before. You know, that's that's what, you know, when the first time that somebody uh, meets a challenge in the partnership that you help them design, they're going to turn around and see whether or not the person who said they could do it is still in their corner. And, you know, again, human nature knows that if people are rooting for your success, you will succeed or you will overcome an obstacle. And And then the last thing that I learned for the research that I did is that is that the uh, partnerships go through these critical events, right? They lose funding, but they continue, let's say, or they win a big project uh, or, you know, or a school opens or something. The thing about it is when a critical event happens, positive or negative, if they endure it, then they have a, they have a, at least a pattern in their background that says uh, we're capable of moving on from that. And it builds a particular camaraderie. It builds a particular um, set of, of expectations. So, you know, those things are, are, are essential. Uh, lack of engagement, you know, the, the idea that somebody starts it and then, you know, kind of doesn't walk away from it, but basically says, call me when you need me. You know, the, the time you need me is in the middle of the night when something isn't working and I'm someplace halfway around the world and I don't have any context of why it doesn't work, so I can't help you. So being committed to that first, you know, kind of vulnerable year or whatever is, is is absolutely critical. And then the last thing is safe space, you know, which is where will we do this, right? So if I say, what's going to be hard for me to do? And you say, don't think I could do this in my classroom. That's what led us to kind of understand that there need to be the equivalent of R&D centers in the education world that are equivalent to R&D centers in every other aspect of industry. And those places should be places where the work can take place, but they have to be, they can't be simulations that don't, that don't mimic what the real world looks like. Because otherwise they'll come out of there, they'll be tremendously successful, they'll go into the first education space, they'll die, mm-hmm. and then everybody will, will declare that the thing was a bad idea when it was, you know, sort of like designing, you know, a, a medical product. And realizing they have to be able to sit on the seat of your car in the middle of Texas while somebody's in a Walmart and it's going to be 180 degrees and that pump still has to be able to fit to, to work. So if I designed it in, in the comfort of my own home, you know, in my basement and it was 47 degrees to 90 degrees, it's not going to work when it goes out in the real world. So a safe space is also a space that's real. Right. And, and, you know, the, the, the innovation lab at past has that, right? Mm-hmm. You have real students, real teachers, and you get a chance to see how people really react to things. And you get the surprises of what you thought for sure was going to work 
or you see something that you had no idea was an assumption that was like the $57 school bus cost, and you see those in real time, and then you engineer around them, and you hopefully get a good result. And it's joyous, right? It's joyous. That's, that's the other thing. So transformative education yep. and really stepping outside of that, that comfort zone, that box, is a joyous experience for all of the participants. And it's certainly been a joy for us um, in this journey, um, both to have you along for the ride and also today uh, for this conversation. So we want to thank you very much it's for spending pleasure. time with us. And for those listening, um, hoping that uh, these pearls of wisdom, which they truly are, mm-hmm can help you make decisions around stepping outside um, into a world where there's no box. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up step back and lean in to reimagine education.